good to hear you all talking to each other. It's good to be with you this morning. We are in our final um, week of our series that we've been calling Quirks because we're kind of a quirky church, and so we're just naming our quirks. And um, so this is our final final quirk. It's not our last quirk, just our last week of talking about quirks for a little while. Um, in one of my favorite seminar, seminary courses, early on, we were assigned a book called A Theology for the Social Gospel by a man named Walter Rauschenbusch. Um, I had never heard of Walter Rauschenbusch. And I read this book begrudgingly, hoping to hurry through it and get onto the stuff that I really wanted to read, like Karl Barth or whoever else was assigned. Reinhold Niebuhr, I think, was assigned. But this book just caught me totally by surprise. And in fact, the, the first book I ever wrote was an attempt to reread this book by Walter Rauschenbusch. It was, had that big of an impact on me. So his story has been very important for me and, in turn, Redemption Church. Um, Rauschenbusch's family came from Germany in the mid-1800s, and he was a seventh-generation pastor. All the other guys had been German Lutherans, but his dad converted to American Baptist when, when they were here in, town, or here in uh, America. And Walter was the first Rauschenbusch to be born in um, America. This is 1861 he was born. He grew up in Rochester, New York. His dad was a professor at the Baptist Seminary there. And he grew up being educated in both German and English. And they figured out from an early age this kid was really brilliant, had just a brilliant mind, and a sincere faith, even as a young man. Plus, he was Baptist. And Baptists have, even back then, had this big emphasis on the gospel as a way to escape hell and go to heaven when you, when you die, which we, we talked about a lot. But, but Rauschenbusch was a scholar, um, and so he would, he would press on this idea. He studied in Germany and then came back to the U.S. This is all before World War II, and was first in his class at seminary, had his choice of ministry assignments. Everybody came after him, like colleges to be a professor, seminaries, um, churches. Everyone kind of expected him to be like a, a professor and a scholar and write books and be a big deal. But he didn't do that at first. He instead took a, a job as a pastor in a little church in New York City. It's a, it was a German-speaking congregation in, um, called Second Baptist Church in a little neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen, which now is completely gentrified. Like, that's where Madonna lives right now, and Seinfeld and Jon Stewart. Back then, it was the worst slum in, in New York City. I mean, they called it Hell's Kitchen. Like, that's what it was. It was incredibly violent. The police were corrupt. Prostitution, gambling, gangs. Rauschenbusch noted at one point that the, the, um, the saloons and brothels far outnumbered the churches in this neighborhood. If, you, if you've ever seen The Gangs of New York, anybody seen that movie? Same exact time and place. That's Five Points neighborhood. One of those was, was Hell's Kitchen. Same era. And most of the German immigrants lived there in Hell's Kitchen, working in the garment industry. Um, turning their own personal apartments into factories to make clothing. They would sew dresses at home and take them to the foreman who would then nitpick them and find a way not to pay him full price for them. And if they were, um, argued too much, he would just fire them because there were hundreds of immigrants just waiting to take their jobs. Some of them worked in factories, which is more miserable. U.S. at the time had the highest rate of industrial injuries in the world, 
35,000 people a year died at work. And there was no compensation for their families, no accountability for the corporations or bosses who let this happen because these were mostly immigrants and nobody cared. They were outcasts. And so they worked 60 hours a week for maybe eight, nine bucks a week, not enough to live on. But on the bright side, there was a good chance you would die before your next disappointing paycheck. So there was that, you know. And to make, sorry, bad joke. To make ends meet, families would very often double up in their tenement apartments. Two families, three, maybe 10, 12 people, if not more, would be crammed into these dark, overpriced three-room apartments where the landlords were not bound by any safety laws, and they could just evict people anytime they wanted for no reason, just turn them out on the street. And um, immigrants especially, had to just sort of put up with this. And that and the rats and the mice and the bugs and the diseases that spread so quickly and killed so many, especially children. Um, at the time, nearly 70% of all deaths in the tenements were children under the age of five. And it didn't matter. These were immigrants. They were cheap labor. And that's all. We all know the story of um, the Titanic sinking in 1912, killing um, 1,500 people, in, including Leonardo DiCaprio, sadly. <laughs> um, 10 years, just, just earlier than that, 10 years, a steamship called the General Slocum was carrying 1,500 German immigrants. There were Lutherans on their way to a church picnic, and the boat caught fire and started to go down, and the desperate passengers found that the lifeboats were wired in place. They couldn't break them loose, and all of the life preservers were rotted and useless, and so more than a 1,000 German immigrants drowned in the East River. And everyone's heard of Titanic. Nobody's heard of General Slocum, because it was immigrants who died. The captain wasn't punished. The, the company wasn't even fined. And so Walter Rauschenbusch, this kind of wet behind the ears, seminary graduate, waded into the deep end of the pool in Hell's Kitchen and became the pastor of Second Baptist Church, where he found that he wasn't there just to be a preacher. He was often asked to be an unofficial counselor, an interpreter, and advisor. Anytime any of his parishioners needed help, they could never afford a lawyer, and, and they couldn't call the police because they were corrupt. And so they really only had two options. You could call the gangs or you call the church, the pastor. And so he did a lot more than just like preside over weddings and funerals. He was involved in the daily lives of his people, bearing their burdens, just in going with them, interpreting for them, advising them, helping them navigate this very um, foreign and often cruel culture. And so on a daily basis, this kind of upper-middle-class, well-educated whiz kid um, found himself face-to-face -face with severe poverty and systemic injustice, and it broke his heart and made him mad, and it messed with his theology a bit. And what made the poverty and injustice of the time even more absurd in New York City was that just a few blocks uptown, New York's high society were living in lavish affluence. This is the era of the robber barons, right? There, there were no labor unions, no safety regulations, no OSHA, no child labor laws. There was a huge disparity between the lives of the rich and the poor. The rich were completely insulated from the lower classes. I mean, they lived in the same city, but they, they lived in two different worlds. 
By the way, this should sound at least a little bit familiar to us um, here in the suburbs and in uh, our nation where wealth inequality is now at a, a similar point. And so Rauschenbusch, he did his best to help. That There was you know, very little that he could do for his people. He would tell stories. Um, he told a story about a woman whose husband was run over by a streetcar and killed. It was the driver's fault. And the company offered to pay her $100, which was less than the cost of the man's funeral at the time. So Rauschenbusch went to argue with the company. And they said, well, the legal limit is $5,000. But the streetcars kill so many people that if we paid that to everyone, we go bankrupt. Right? That was their excuse. So they paid her $100 in $1 bills to make it look like more money to an immigrant. And um, something like that happened to him several times a week. And Rauschenbusch, he kind of wasn't used to burying these injustices, you know, it grated on him. He felt like he needed to do something, but he didn't really know what. And his job was pastoring, but his, his theology didn't seem to do much in this situation. And so what he, what he did was he started writing for newspapers telling these stories had this really famous article about a tailor whose daughter was dying of tuberculosis. And he worked all day in the tailor's shop, and then he would go home at night and sleep in a chair with his daughter in his lap. And he was exhausted and heartbroken, and she was only getting worse. And he tells about the morning that he left for work, knowing that she would die that day while he was work, but he couldn't stay with her because his boss said, I'm going to fire you if you don't show up to work. And he said in his article. So next time you're at the tailor and, you know, he's not working fast enough or, or doesn't speak perfect English, maybe you should check and see if he's choking back tears because his little girl is dying today and he can't be with her. And he's there and said, tailoring your new suit of clothes. I mean, he, he said this stuff to, to the wealthy. He said, that's the world we built. And then he started saying, God is not okay with this. And he was a bit of an anomaly. I mean, he was at home with the immigrant in, in the squalor in the tenements. That's where he lived. But he was highly educated and starting to become really well-known and well-respected. And so he was always rubbing shoulders with the elites as well. He, he and his wife were very close friends with Ora and John D. Rockefeller, who was the richest man on the planet at the time. Um, and so he's going back and forth between these worlds. He was also a German speaker and had studied in Germany, so the, the nationalism thing was there too. He understood German nationalism, which is on the rise. This is right before the lead up to World War I and World War II. And so he was going back and forth between these worlds, and he realized the gospel that he was preaching of personal salvation was not good news to either one of these groups. It made no difference in the way that they lived their lives. It really only called them to change their personal private religious beliefs, which most of them had already done. These were all Christians. And so when he preached the gospel of personal salvation to the poor, he felt like he was saying, I know your life really sucks right now, but it will be better when you die. He's like, this is cruel and hopeless. And when he preached personal salvation to the rich, he felt like he was saying, your callous indifference to the poor in hell's kitchen, it doesn't matter because your ticket's punched for heaven, so you're good. And this caused a genuine theological crisis for Walter Rauschenbusch. And he thought, if, it, if the gospel is not good news for both the poor and the wealthy, then it wasn't the gospel that Jesus was preaching. 
Jesus explicitly said in the very first message in Luke 4 that he ever gave, I came to proclaim good news to the poor. That's where he started. And he talked explicitly multiple times on what a disadvantage being wealthy could be in terms of the kingdom of God. And he constantly exposed the dangers of empire and nationalism. And so Rauschenbusch went to work and began to describe theologically this idea he saw in, in the New Testament. It was kind of, it was there for a thousand years and then kind of lost. This idea of social sin and social redemption. And he started saying that the, the nexus of the social and the personal is where all the power of the gospel resides. And he called people out for the way they treated the poor. He took on politicians, governments, corporations, the robber barons, government agencies, calling them all to the common good and not just their own interests. And he, he said, you know, there's no turning to God without turning to your neighbor, especially the least of these among you. He one time wrote, whoever uncouples the religious and the social life has not understood Jesus. Whoever sets any bounds for the um, reconstructive power of the religious life over the social relations and institutions of men to that extent denies the faith of the master. And so he started teaching um, in kind of redemption terms that a gospel that's become warped by individualism, consumer capitalism, and nationalism is no longer gospel, no longer good news. He was one of the first theologians to, to teach this to me, another Baptist kid, right? Growing up um, in the midst of a society about 100 years later, it's in kind of the same place, making some of the same errors. And he, he was one of the first to teach me that some of the most important categories of sin and salvation are social categories. They're corporate categories. Because, I mean, those categories are powerful. Well, when whole systems are corrupted, it impacts whole societies. He said the gospel is personal. It's about you and your relationship with Jesus, and it's social. It's about how we organize our common life together. And he said these are they're like two sides of a scissors. The, the power is in holding them together. And what Walter Rauschenbusch used to say was um, he would have, and this is why I'm telling his story, he would have never discovered this, this aspect, this essential aspect of the gospel, had he not become paired with the outcasts in Hell's Kitchen. He was just blind to it. His mentors were blind to it. Academia was, his colleagues he, he said things like affluence, privilege, power, abundance, prosperity. These things easily become obstacles for those who truly want to respond faithfully to the gospel. And the only way to see through those things and get to the kernel of it is to become paired with the outcast. For us in, in our time in the suburbs of Johnson County, and in a society as affluent and as powerful as America, this insight, I think, of Walter Rauschenbusch still um, has some power. 
if we want to see where God is working and, and join God in that work, we have to become paired with the outcasts of the world. We have to live in um, solidarity to the poor, the immigrant, the least, the last, the lowly. And as we do this, it's like scales just kind of fall from our eyes and we, we begin to see the corporate nature of sin and salvation even and how the ministry of Christ was aimed at those things too. And so at Redemption Church, this is one of our quirks. We're trying to organize our common life together in such a way that we live in solidarity with the outcasts. Real quick, let me venture a definition of what I mean by solidarity. I didn't realize this. It's a French word, um, but it it's really came to um, the forefront of the world's mind because it was in the Napoleonic Code to stand in solidarity, right? Which does not mean to have like a feeling of goodwill towards someone, like a disposition of, of tenderness or, or, or affection. We may feel that, but that's not solidarity because um, solidarity is not a feeling, it's a practice. It's a way, um, it's a practice that acknowledges two things at the same time. One, we are different in some important way crucial way. We're distinct from each other. But two, our fate is linked. And so our futures have to track together. So solidarity means to find unity with some group other than our own group. And then to express that unity through action, through acts of solidarity. Sometimes even in opposition to our own category our own position, or go against our own group if they're taking advantage of this other. So solidarity means to stand together with the ragamuffins of the world and, and just linking our futures together, hoping that by holding them together we'll find the power of, of the gospel, that we won't falter or fail. In fact, that's why often the symbol of solidarity is a closed fist. It's like five different digits together as one, and it connotes this idea of strength and power in that solidarity, right, that comes through unity and holding together. And much of Christ's action in the Bible involved expressing solidarity with the outcasts. I mean, he had this habit of hanging around with those who were on the outside of the boundaries of Jewish life. However they would divide the world into insiders and outsiders, Jesus would go stand with the outsiders, Lepers, disabled, the sick, the unclean, Gentiles, tax collectors, prostitutes, foreigners, women, children, orphans. He'd draw them close and stand in solidarity with them so that to continue to reject them, you had to reject Jesus. It's like half his ministry. It's violating taboos, breaking all the in and out kind of rules, living in solidarity with the ragamuffins of the world. And the conviction of Christians, historically, though not so much in the last 150 years or so, especially in America, but historically, the conviction of the church was Jesus stood in solidarity with the outcasts. And he did this because he was revealing something essential. This was revelation about who God is and about life in the world and what it means to be human. So this isn't one of those, oh, you know, back in Bible times, those people were so confused, were so much better than they are now. Now, we still need this wisdom. 
We still need to learn there's no turning to God without turning to each, each other. And there is a piece of the gospel we will just straight miss unless we are living in solidarity with the outcasts. We still need this wisdom because we still have this habit, and this, it's a universal human habit of kind of meeting the world with this unconscious edge, right, that's sharp. Every person, place, or thing that we meet, we, we, we have this tendency to sort them into things that I like, that are like me, and are therefore good. And then things that I don't like, that are not like me, and are therefore bad. And then we say, they're the bad guys, kill the bad guys, and keep the good guys. This is, this is just what we do. And... We end up thinking like things will be better if we could either get rid of them or force them to capitulate or convince them or something. Jesus moved hard against this impulse. He said, actually, as Bill read earlier, that is the way of hell. That is the way of death. This is not what God is like. This is not what God is after. Perfection for God is not about the elimination of the negative or the problematic. It's about its inclusion and its redemption along with everything else. I mean, they didn't kill him because he was dividing the world and saying, kill the right people. He was an enemy because he said, I want all of it. God wants all of it. God is redeeming all of it. And he expressed this by living in solidarity with the outcasts. Let, let me see if I can name a few of these and if you, uh, if you recognize them. Um, Jesus lived in solidarity with the poor. I mean, if you think about his personal narrative, he was born in a barn to an unwed mother. And the only people who came to see it were the shepherds who were outcasts in that world too. The regional king wanted him dead, so his family had to immediately leave and spend two years as political refugees in Egypt. And when they came back, they couldn't go home to their home province, they, so they lived as refugees in Galilee. I don't know if you ever, that ever connected with you. Jesus spent most of his life living away from his family's home as a political refugee, which meant, for most of that time, poverty. And then in the, in the Galilee, he lived among the poor and worked as a, a carpenter, which really meant just construction worker. He was a laborer. Most of his ministry was in these little towns and villages where the poorest people lived. And he would go there and teach in their synagogues, telling them that the kingdom of God has come, that God's reign and rule is coming and bursting into the world through him, through, he would say, through us. And then he would heal the sick Sickness and poverty were linked in their day. Still is, kind of. And then he would confront injustice and poverty and violence and racism and prejudice and, and hypocrisy. He lived in solidarity to the poor. He also lived in solidarity to the ritually unclean. We talked about this a lot in Leviticus. He was always touching lepers, which is a violation of the law healing lame people who weren't allowed to go to the temple because they were unclean. Healing, the, my favorite story of this is healing the woman with a flow of blood who was just perpetually unclean, perpetually locked out of their community life. 
did the same thing for people possessed, um, demon-possessed people. They were often in unclean places like the garrison demoniac, you know, the healing in a cemetery. He, he traveled to Gentile land over and over just to touch, to teach, to heal. Anytime keeping Jewish law would put somebody on the margins, Jesus would go stand with them. He'd break the law and overcome the division because he stood in solidarity with, with the unclean. He stood in solidarity with women and children. Suffer the little children not to come to me, he said. He healed of children as an example. He said, if you, unless you humble yourself, become like a little child, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't get in on what I'm doing. He dramatically expanded the role of women in his own movement. And back then, you know, women were treated like, like property. Their marriage rights was the exchange of ownership of a woman from her father to her husband. Jesus, he didn't go for that. He, he spoke directly to women in public. This simply was not done in their culture. You didn't speak to a woman who is not your wife. He did it all the time. He educated women. He taught women alongside men. This simply was not done in that day. Women were included as followers. They were involved in his ministry. They financed his ministry. They were crucial supporters. They were leaders in the early church, pastoring, teaching, mentoring, leading. Women were the first, if you think about it, the first ones to bear witness to and proclaim the resurrection. Women. Jesus lived in solidarity to women and children. And in solidarity, solidarity with notorious sinners. My favorite story of this is the woman caught in adultery. It's such a great example. When, when the crowd is just literally about to start stoning her, he comes and stands beside her and stops it. And he says, whoever is without sin, whoever does not struggle, right, with sin or sexuality, by the way, if you, it's not a problem for you, you throw the first stone. And nobody did. He's like, if not, better move along. And they all moved along, right? He was constantly being accused of hanging out with drunks and prostitutes and notorious sinners because he did. He stood in solidarity with sinners and he asked others to do the same. He also lived in solidarity with racial and ethnic outsiders. There's a story where he meets the Syrophoenician woman. She was a Canaanite um, woman, pagan. Heals her daughter. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a perfect example of that. It was aimed directly at this kind of racial, ethnic, um, in-group, out-grouping. Samaritans were a hated ethnic group. They were persecuted and exploited by the Jews. Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of a story, calls him a neighbor. The story of the woman at the well, equally scandalous. This woman, he was in Samaria, Samaria, Samaria talking to a Samaritan who is a woman and also a sinner. This is like the trifecta of, <laughs> of like violations. This solidarity with a female sinner, ethnic, racial, religious outsider. And then finally, I think most dramatically, Jesus lived in solidarity with his own oppressors. Rome was oppressing and exploiting the Jewish people all over Palestine and for all the military. The main source of Roman oppression 
was economic. It was through taxation. And so what does Jesus do? Singles out Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Goes to his house like a friend would do. He eats with him. And what does it do to Zacchaeus? Transforms his relationships. I mean, Matthew, his disciple, was a tax collector. He had a Roman oppressor, collaborator, in his 12. And in probably the most radical act of solidarity with his own oppressors, he was convicted in a sham trial, sentenced to death by a Roman prefect. And he died on a Roman cross while forgiving his oppressors. Father, forgive them, he says. That's Jesus. Jesus lived in solidarity to the poor, the unclean, to women and children, to notorious sinners, racial and ethnic outsiders, even his own oppressors. And he calls us to do the same. He said, follow me. Actually, he said, take up your cross and follow me. Don't think this will go easy. And maybe it's that part, the don't think this will go easy part, that explains why American Christians really struggle to live in solidarity with outcasts. We just do, for the most part. We've insulated ourselves from the poor. That's what, that's what suburbs are. They live, you know, the poor live in a different part of town. We won't have to see it. I've been so ashamed of my own community and their response to the homeless as soon as we started to try to advocate and care for them. The homeless, not good. I've been ashamed of Christians and their response to the pandemic. I mean, COVID-19 revealed a terrible deficiency in our discipleship. I mean, the, the pandemic, for the most part, was not dangerous for the young and the healthy. It was very dangerous for the elderly and, and for the physically vulnerable. You know, just something like diabetes or asthma, transplants, you know, any kind of immunocompromised person. And all the, the pandemic required was that those who were not endangered should just sacrifice just a little on behalf of those who are, and we couldn't do it. Christians failed on this as a whole. Not everybody. Some of us did fine. I was very proud of Redemption Church. But we're paired with, we live in solidarity to the outcasts. We've trained for this. But in the, in the wider culture, Christians were among the most vulnerable or vocal opponents to things like wearing masks and vaccinations. Simple act of solidarity with those who are at risk and we couldn't do it. When Jesus spent most of his time and ministry living in solidarity to the poor, the unclean, women and children, notorious sinners, racial and ethnic outsiders, and even his own oppressors. And this was part of how he woke people up and helped them to avoid their kind of social blindness and lack of awareness and ways in which they were bound to misconstrue the gospel, what God is doing in the world. God is not trying to um, save the good guys and kill the bad guys. We're all, we're all the good guys. We're all the bad guys. God is trying to save all of it, reconciling everything back to God, to self, to each other, 
to creation even. I know I say it a lot, but I say it because I, I think it's true. The line between good and evil does not pass between people or groups of people. It passes through every human soul and every human community that we form. And so if we, if we want to eradicate the problem, we have to start with ourselves. And that's not the Christian story. Jesus' strategy for helping us to escape our own blindness, our own lack of awareness, and we all have it, was to ask us to live in solidarity with the outcasts, whoever that might be, in whatever situation we find ourselves. You know the story of the rich young ruler where he's like, comes to Jesus, says, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, love, love God, love your neighbor. And he's like, I already do that. And Jesus said, okay, well, sell all you have and give it to the poor. And it says that he went away sad because he was very rich, right? I have this theory that if he would have said, done, I'll do it, I'll sell it and give it to the board, Jesus would have just kept going until he found the guy's thing, found his taboo. He would have just kept asking questions until he saw the limit of the guy's love, and then he would go stand with that limit, right? Because this is what he always did. And he'd say, can you love even this? Because this is how the kingdom comes. And for a bunch of rich white suburbanites, most likely, God will come to us disguised as the poor and the immigrant. Those who are taboo in their sexuality. The limit. God comes to us as the limit of our love. It's why we read the, the parable of the sheep and the goats and why I don't really have to interpret it at all. The king says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was a prisoner, you visited me. And they said, when? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, that was me. You did it to me. And when you didn't, that was me. And so one of our quirks at redemption is we want to live in solidarity with the outcasts. We need them. They are saving us from ourselves. We have to love the ragamuffins of the world. We have to become the ragamuffins or we're cooked. We have to love them as if they are Christ because they are Christ to us. That's what, that's what the parable says. Mother Teresa had this habit in her ministry. She would walk around Calcutta with the little orphan kids running around just looking for a scrap of food and she would grab their faces and she would say, I see in you the face of Christ. She would squeeze their cheeks together. I see in you the face of Christ. Many times... I've known people who come to Redemption Church and here they meet the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked and the prisoner and it breaks their heart and they come alive. I see it happen all the time. It's, it's the best part of this job. But many times I've known people who come to Redemption Church and they meet the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked and the prisoner and they go away sad because they are very rich. And that's still the biggest danger. 
for us all. And so we hold this quirk of great importance. And we try to live in solidarity with whoever it is that makes our skin crawl, you know? Whoever it is that we're tempted to count out. And we all have our people. And we try to learn to live in solidarity with them. And slowly, slowly, I mean, it takes years, you guys. Slowly, over time, what happens is we see in them the face of Christ. And this is how the kingdom comes. Let's pray. Just for a moment, invite you to draw to mind just your own way of dividing the world and who you put on the outside as the bad guys, the ones who are wrong. Just best you can, try to be honest about who that is. And think about what, what it might mean to begin to live in solidarity with them. Oh God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see you in the face of those we're tempted to despise. We thank you that Jesus will just eventually find our thing, find the one we can't accept and love. And pray that we'll just take that one little next step toward them in solidarity and that you'll open our eyes to the kingdom. I pray that you would watch over Redemption Church and our, um, and all our quirkiness and um, help us not to get all proud about it or thinking we're cool, but especially in this quirk, just keep us roped up with the strugglers. And as we learn to um, live in solidarity with, with kind of the disavowed aspects of the world, I pray also, God, you help us live in solidarity to like the disavowed aspects of our own life and start to just admit our own brokenness and not be too proud, maybe to accept ourselves and each other. We just confess, God, it's hard to be like Jesus sometimes, but, man, we have no place else to go. And we are grateful. I'm grateful for you and grateful for this church. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand if you would, and we're going to receive communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and broke it and passed it out to his guys and he had them eat it, said, this is my body broken for you.
And then after supper, they all drank from the same cup, same chalice. And he said, this cup is a new covenant, a new deal in my blood, my life. And he said, every time you get together after I'm gone, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my life into your life, be made out of the stuff I'm made out of, and then go out into the world and, and you won't believe what will happen. And so this is why we observe communion. And this is why we invite any ragamuffin to join us at the table. Um, so if you would just pray with me, let's play, pray a blessing on the bread and, and the juice. Lord, we do ask you to bless this food, the bread, the cup, the body, the blood. As we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?